This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, the unprecedented challenges of 2020 are playing out on the campaign trail as the country faces yet another COVID-19 crisis point. Across the U.S., nearly 27 million people have already voted, despite the challenges of casting a ballot in a pandemic. In a bitterly divided country, it may be the only thing Americans can agree on, the importance of voting in campaign 2020. With just 16 days left before Election Day for President Trump, it's rallies as usual, even in red zone states with dangerously high numbers of COVID cases. We win Wisconsin. We win the whole ballgame. A... What the hell do you think I'm doing here on a freezing night with 45 degree wind? And it's an all out push for every voting group, particularly those where former Vice President Biden is picking up support. Suburban women, will you please like me? We love our senior citizens. For the former Vice President, it's a referendum on President Trump. The only senior that Donald Trump cares about, the only senior is senior Donald Trump. And a challenge to hold his temper when faced with Republican attacks and allegations of wrongdoing. I know you'd ask it. I have no response. It's another smear campaign. Right up your alley. Those are the questions you always ask. We'll talk with the head of the Democratic Party, Tom Perez, as well as former Republican Party chairman, Reince Priebus. Plus, we'll take a closer look at our election security with former head of the National Security Agency, Admiral Mike Rogers. We'll also hear from former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb about this latest surge of COVID-19. The head of the Atlanta Federal Reserve, Rafael Bostic, will join us to talk about those hardest hit by the pandemic. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. and welcome to Face the Nation. Coast to coast and around the world, the number of new coronavirus infections continues to rise. There are almost 40 million cases worldwide, more than 8 million of them right here in the U.S. On Friday, there were 69,000 new reported cases. That's the highest since July. With just over two weeks until Election Day, Americans are now able to vote in all 50 states, and they are going to the polls in record numbers. We've got a lot to get to. We begin this morning with CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. COVID America's third wave is so widespread, blindfolded, you could throw darts at a map and probably hit a hotspot, like Colorado. This is the most since late May. And Nashville. Our key metrics are not going in the right direction. And Ohio. This thing has roared back. Roaring by any measure into a public health crisis. 26 states are in the red zone for new infections. In all, 36 states have new cases trending up. Five states have positivity rates higher than 20 percent. Especially shocking, South Dakota's rate, 36 percent. And Iowa, just under 50 percent. Madison, Wisconsin responded by opening a two-way drive-thru. On one side, people pull in for a COVID test. On the other, they get a flu shot. 
We're really trying to prevent a twindemic. We don't want a lot of flu and COVID happening at the same time. COVID's also on the minds of voters and these poll workers in California. PPE is a must. In the Houston area, election workers have their temperatures taken every day. Voters are not screened because it is their constitutional right to vote. Uh, we cannot prevent them from entering a voting center. With 16 days until the election, early voters keep stampeding to the polls. From coast to coast, masked voters spent the day in lines. In Nevada, standing for four hours. In Georgia, more than 10 hours. Pandemic or not, election experts predict Americans may cast a record 150 million ballots. For all the talk that a vaccine is imminent, COVID America's next few months could be rough. With colder weather, holiday travel and gatherings, disease experts predict the viral spread could accelerate. The spike in new cases could be dramatic and daunting. Margaret, that new vaccine can't get here too soon. Mark Strassman in Atlanta, thank you. The recent spike in coronavirus cases is prompting new lockdowns throughout Europe. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Liz Palmer is in London. Good morning. The COVID infection rate in a couple of the world's top hotspots, that is Brazil and India, has actually been declining a little lately. But in Europe, the virus is back with a vengeance. In Paris and eight other French cities, police are enforcing a new curfew, checking that anyone on the street after 9 p.m. has good reason. And Germany, where rigorous testing had kept infection rates low, is facing a COVID surge, too. This is Prague in June, a vast public celebration of what Czechs believed was the end of COVID there. They've partied too soon and are now battling the worst outbreak per capita in Europe. Britain is also hard hit. It's imposed a patchwork of restrictions that includes no visiting anyone in another household, even family. In Liverpool, the worst hit area, hospitals are once again filling up just as they did this spring. We're overwhelmed and it's not winter. It's not even winter yet. To raise the country's battered morale... 94-year-old Queen Elizabeth appeared in public for the first time in seven months, unmasked, but in what must be the safest place in the realm, the military's biodefense lab. Tests of the Oxford vaccine, considered one of the front runners, are going incredibly well, says the project's director, and there was a ray of hope from Kate Bingham, head of Britain's vaccine task force. But I do think we have a, a shot of seeing the two leading candidates seeing efficacy of those this side of Christmas. But in Yiwu, China, they don't have to wait that long. Doses of a Chinese COVID vaccine made by a state lab were offered to the public as an experiment for $60 a shot. It took only two and a half hours for supplies to run out. Here in London, the deputy chief medical officer has said that the rollout of the vaccine could start in December and already a training program for health workers to give the shot is in the works. Margaret? Liz, thanks. One campaign 2020 battleground state also has the distinction of being one of the hottest red zone states in this country. Wisconsin saw a record 4,105 new cases on Friday alone. President Trump campaigned there on Saturday. CBS News White House correspondent Weijia Jiang reports. President Trump drew thousands of supporters to a southern Wisconsin airport hangar on Saturday night. The state is grappling with grim record highs for new positive COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations and daily deaths. But the president claimed the end of the pandemic is near, praising his performance. We're rounding the corner. We got the vaccines, all that, but even without it. We're rounding the corner. Even after contracting the coronavirus himself, Mr. Trump hosted rallies in seven states last week. The campaign tells CBS News it took strong precautions at all of them. But at each event, few people wore masks as they stood shoulder to shoulder. I do not believe.
believe that the masks are going to do what they say it's going to do. I don't believe that it's that it's the cure-all that we've all put it out there. I believe it's a symbol of fear. In Michigan, the crowd repurposed a familiar chant after the president criticized Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer's efforts to control the virus. The schools have to be open, right? Lock them all up. On Twitter, Whitmer wrote, this is exactly the rhetoric that has put me, my family, and other government officials' lives in danger. She was the target of an alleged kidnapping plot by a group that disagreed with lockdown measures. President Trump is also pouring time and energy into the Sunbelt states. We will have a red wave, the likes of which they've never seen before. But Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska warned constituents of a blue tsunami, blaming the president for a possible Republican bloodbath in the Senate. President Trump plans to make two to five campaign stops a day from now until November 3rd, according to a senior campaign official. Today, he will hold a rally outside of Reno trying to flip this state he lost in 2016. Margaret. Weijia Jiang in Las Vegas. We want to take a closer look now at two states that went to President Trump in 2016, but now are putting Vice President Joe Biden in the lead. In the typically Republican state of Arizona, former Vice President Joe Biden is three points ahead of the president. In Wisconsin, Mr. Biden's at 51 percent and Mr. Trump five points behind him at 46 percent. CBS News Elections and Surveys Director Anthony Salvanto is in Westchester County, New York, to tell us more. Good morning to you, Anthony. Why is President Trump trailing in these states? Uh, good morning, Margaret. So from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt, two states that could be pivotal in the Electoral College count, let me show you what's going on. First of all, views on how the candidates handle themselves personally. Joe Biden with a significant edge on the president there, always an important part of voters' calculus. But let me show you this. Such a big part of the president's base in Wisconsin and in other states has been that white non-college vote. He won them by a large gap in 2016. Well, his margin with them this year is down, in this case in Wisconsin, from 62 to 52 percent. Now, you might say, well, he's still winning them. Yes, he is. But for candidates, it's about margins. It's about running up the score with groups that support you. Joe Biden cutting into those margins now. That's important. And then this, Margaret, it partly explains why. Views that the president is mostly concerned about the wealthy and the elite as opposed to the middle class. Now, neither candidate getting a majority saying they can, they're concerned mostly with the middle class, but still an edge for Biden there. And then maybe the most important group of all as we head towards election night, millions of ballots are already coming in, people voting by mail across the country. Well, Democrats tell us that they're supporting Joe Biden. They're casting their ballots early, and we see a big lead for Joe Biden among ballots that have already been cast in both Arizona and Wisconsin. I suspect when we get to election night, we may say that Joe Biden has a lead on ballots that have been cast already, and then it's a question of how many of the president's supporters will turn up on election day to try to put him over the top, Margaret. Anthony, the state of Wisconsin has a serious coronavirus outbreak right now. Is that impacting what voters are thinking? Views on coronavirus has, have been very connected to vote in all of these states. Margaret, let me show you this. Views on who would handle the outbreak better. Joe Biden has an edge in both of these states. And then this, where it really connects to vote. You see Arizona's seniors, such an important part of the electorate there. Well, a bulk of them feel that the president's coronavirus policies have put seniors specifically more at risk. And the thing here, Margaret, is that of these seniors, almost all of them, 95 percent, who feel the president has put them more at risk, are voting for Joe Biden, Margaret. Anthony, this is the home stretch. I mean, what are the closing arguments and how are voters responding? 
So we asked people, what do you want politics in the next four years to be like? And of the things that they said, well, the folks who said that they wanted it to be exciting, well, in these states, the president has a slight lead. But for those who said they wanted politics in the next four years to be calm, Joe Biden has a large lead. The trouble for the president and the advantage for Joe Biden is that more people told us they wanted things to be calm. Margaret? about tone there. All right. Anthony Salvanto, thank you very much. Joining us now is CBS political correspondent Ed O'Keefe. We caught him this morning in between campaign travel and quarantine. Good morning, Ed. It's good, good to, to see you in you. person. I don't yes. know what to do without the Zoom screen. I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> good nice to have you back. back at the table. Absolutely. So uh, tell us about we just heard, what we just heard there. I mean, when we look at Joe Biden's schedule, we didn't see him campaign yesterday. We will see him today. What is his strategy? Because President Trump clearly feels he needs to be out and very visible. And at this point, the Biden campaign doesn't feel that way much at all. He's, he's in North Carolina today. The Tar Heel State has begun its early voting. This is a state that the Biden campaign believes, hopes they can take back. But they look at the same kind of polling we do, state-by-state state surveys. Those are the only ones that matter at this point. Don't worry about national horse race numbers. Look at those state-by-state state numbers. They see single-digit advantages, as we do for Biden, and they worry that if they can't keep their base motivated, if they can't keep convincing people to show up, whether it's earlier on the day of, they're going to be in trouble. This week is mostly about debate prep. He will not be seen again after today until Thursday night in Nashville at that next debate. So they are going to keep him focused on that. That's a signal that they believe this is still a very big opportunity for them to provide one last big contrast with the president and that they have to prepare him for potential attacks from the president. The other thing they're going to continue to do is spend the record sums of money they've raised. Mm -hmm. More than $300 million in the month of September alone. They've got more than $420 million in the bank. That's going into advertising. That's going into direct targeting of their supporters across the country through text messaging and email to continue to turn out people. $100 million alone being spent on what they call voter education or compelling people to show up and vote. Outraising and outspending the in Trump campaign. In big ways, in, in historic ways. By the end of this election, they will have spent more than, well, near, nearly half, more than half, more than $500 million. I can't do math this morning, sorry. <laughs> uh, too, too much, too many numbers. Uh, but the point being, that is a record Crazy sum. Crazy amounts of money. Never been done before. And we're also seeing that in the other races, not just the presidential uh, race. Um, another key finding that Anthony Salvanto had in his battleground tracker had to do with the Senate race out in Arizona. Mark Kelly, Democrat there, really widening the lead uh, against Martha McSally, uh, the Republican incumbent in that race. This is uh, John McCain's old seat. It is. What, what is happening in Arizona? Well, Mark Kelly the, Kelly, the former astronaut, the husband of the former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, is the one example across this country we have found where the presidential candidate may ride the coattails of somebody further down the ballot. He's been a huge help to the Biden campaign in Arizona. They're convinced they can win that race. Uh, they, they can take back that state for the first time since the 1990s. He raised more than $38 million in the third quarter. Any other cycle, that would be a huge sum. Astronomical. Astronomical, you might say, exactly, especially for an astronaut. But dwarfed by the $57 million raised by Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, who's running against the Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham. And just because you raise big money, remember, right. doesn't mean you win. Just ask Beto O'Rourke, who raised a huge sum two years ago and came up short. That could still happen this year for some of these Senate candidates. No, key point. And uh, we'll have much more to talk about in uh, ahead in the show about that race. Ed, so good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? 
See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. We want to turn now to election security and Admiral Mike Rogers. During the last election, he was the head of the National Security Agency and U.S. Cyber Command, which runs military cyberspace operations. Good morning to you. Um, this is good morning, Margaret. This is the most watched, potentially most complicated election in the midst of a pandemic um, that our country's seen. I know in 2016, after the fact, you said you wish more had been done in terms of direct public action before the election took place. What do you think about now? How secure are our elections? So I am very confident that we're going to have an election that will allow us to vote as citizens, that will accurately reflect the results of that voting, and will generate a, a set of results that we can believe in. Um, I think a lot of work has been done. The biggest challenge to me, in some ways, is the context in which this election is occurring. We're a very polarized and divided nation right now, and then we're in the middle of a significant health crisis. So I think there's a few things we need to be mindful of. The first is... The turnout, based on everything we've seen, will hit record levels. We need to be prepared for longer lines and a longer process. There's just a whole lot more voters. And, for example, trying to man polling centers in the midst of a pandemic, when historically many of your poll workers are older individuals, mm -hmm. for example, it's just going to present a challenge, so it's going to take longer. We should be ready for that. Number two, we need to remember elections are run on a state level, so the processes are different. And what is legal and a structure in one state is not the same in another. We need to recognize that and not view that as, hey, there's something wrong because someone else is doing something differently than I am in this election. Number three, I, I think we need to be mindful. It is unlikely that we're going to get a result when we go to bed the night of the election. It right. is very possible, but I think we just need to be ready, given the amount of turnout, given the number of mail-in ballots. In some states, for example, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin— you can't start counting mail-in ballots until the actual election day. Right. So we need to be ready for a, a result that doesn't come out that same night. The last two points I would make, I think, remember, our system allows for legal challenges, legal challenges to process, legal challenges to outcome. That doesn't happen historically all that often at presidential levels, but it often happens at congressional and other levels. We need to let that process play out. And lastly, remember, there's time built into this process. Mm -hmm. States do not actually have to complete the certification process until the middle of December. So let's just be calm. Let's participate. Let's do it peacefully without violence. And then let's let this system play out just as it has for almost two and a half centuries. No, it's important expectation setting that you just did there. Um, I, I want to get to your uh, old line of work and your expertise on the intelligence front, because we know U.S. intelligence says that right now Russia is trying to basically manipulate the public, spread disinformation about the election specifically to hurt the Democratic candidate and some Kremlin-linked actors trying to boost the president. Can Russia at this point actually change the outcome of the election by altering votes? Do they have that capability? So do they have capability? Yes. Is it likely? No. And we haven't seen anything to date that would suggest that we're certainly seeing in cyber the same level of activity that we saw back in 2016. I would say where I think the Russians are doubling down is a little less on cyber activity directed directly against voting infrastructure. Think about voter registration, the actual machines we use to cast ballots, the computer systems we use to tabulate ballot, voting ballots. I don't think you're seeing that same level of activity. Rather, I think what you're watching the Russians do is really double down on the idea of using disinformation via social media and other paths to attempt to pol continue to polarize our nation to incite violence, to incite hatred, and to attempt to pull us apart. So to that point, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that this week um, some of the information about Joe Biden's son, Hunter, that is circulated in uh, tabloid in the New York Post may be the result of a, a hack-and-dump operation. This is speculation at this point, that it could have come from Russian military uh, hacking of a Ukrainian gas company where Hunter Biden served. Do you see any justification for that speculation at this point? I, I, Margaret, I don't know the specifics of this case. Again, my view would be 
let's let it play out. Let's investigate it. Let's get some factual evidence. Let's get the metadata. And let's see if this is accurate or not. I'm just not in a position right. really to speculate. Well, it's being compared to the hack and dump operation that happened, as you know, back in 2016. A lot of um, uh, Democrats alleging that it is that. So when you say you see Russia doing a disinformation and access, uh, spreading disinformation, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That could be an element. So when you look at a disinformation campaign, you see the Russians using false identities. So you might think you're talking to a fellow American from the Midwest when actually you're talking to a Russian troll in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. So using false identity, using false information, attempting to manipulate images, the use of videos that are distorted to create an impression that is not based in fact, to try to energize individuals' emotions, their prejudices, their viewpoints, to galvanize them to work against, if you will, a, a, an outcome that brings us together. Very quickly, what is the thing to watch on election night to know if our elections are secure or not? So if you saw an effort on the part of a foreign entity to attempt to manipulate or deny our election processes, the things I would be looking for are, number one, do you see widespread? And I'm not just talking about right. one or two places, but do you see widespread challenges associated with voter registration rolls? Okay. People show up, they give their license, and the vo it doesn't match. We will watch I that. I would be looking for attempts. Sorry, I've got to interrupt you. I'm so sorry, but we will be watching that. Thank you for flagging it. Admiral Rogers, thank you for joining us. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is in Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, we have now 8 million infections in the United States, record hospitalizations uh, in terms of the red zone areas the White House is concerned about. 26 states fall into that category. Where are we headed as a country? Probably the most difficult phase of this epidemic. I think the next three months are going to be very challenging. There's really no backstop against the spread that we're seeing. We're probably two or three weeks behind Europe, and Europe's in a very difficult position right now, too. I think as we enter the winter, we're going to see continued spread. There's 42 states where hospitalizations are rising. There's 45 states where the rate of transfer, the RT, is above one, meaning they have expanding epidemics. And there's really no backstop. There's not going to be an intervention that really thwarts this um, short of the, um, the ability to get a vaccine, which is probably an event that happens late in next year. Uh, you point out... I lost my sound. Oh, um, I can still hear Dr. Gottlieb. I think we're working on being able to reestablish uh, his audio. Dr. Gottlieb, can you hear me? Okay. We're going to work on fixing that and come back to the conversation with Dr. Gottlieb in a moment. But we're going to turn now to another important conversation uh, with the head of one of the 12 banks that make up the Federal Reserve System. That's Raphael Bostic. He joins us from Atlanta this morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, there was a front page story in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday that pointed to the South, the area of the country you watch most carefully, and said it's been lar largely unscathed economically by the pandemic. It's got a 6.9% unemployment rate, the lowest of any region as of August. When you look at those numbers, does it vindicate the political decision by governors in the South to go ahead and reopen against the advice of health officials? Well, Margaret, I don't know that I would say vindicate. As Dr. Gottlieb was just saying, we're still very much in the midst of this crisis. And one, one of the reasons I think that the South has benefited is because the virus came to us after it had been to California, the West Coast, and, and New York. And so we had got to learn some things about how we might be able to operate and do our economics uh, with the virus with us. And I think that has turned out to be something that's been quite helpful. Important caveat there. When you look at Atlanta... Uh, in particular, I know you pointed out in recent interviews that eviction levels are higher than where they were a year ago. What are some of the indicators that you are watching that make you concerned rather than optimistic as the White House paints us to be on a clear upwards trajectory? Well, I'm definitely concerned, and I'm concerned because as I go around and talk to people and businesses in the district, what I see is 
two real stories going on. In some segments, the economy is recovering and rebounding in a very robust way. But in other segments, things like hotels and restaurants, small businesses in particularly minority and lower income communities, those places are seeing much more difficult situations. Now, if you were to graph this, after the great decline that we saw in March and April, the recovery looks something like this, where you have a number of sectors that are going up. This is what I call a less than sign. And in other instances, you're not seeing any recovery at all. And so those segments where we're not seeing that recovery, that's really what I'm concerned about as we move forward. A, a, dis, a disjointed recovery is kind of what you're sketching out there. I, you know, there was one number that I saw, I read about this week, that really stood out to me, and I want to I share it with you. And it paints this picture of white-collar and working-class America being on really different trajectories. According to the latest household pulse data, between 7 and 11 million children in this country live in a household where children just didn't eat enough because their household couldn't afford it. This is the richest country in the world. We're being told that the economy is recovering. This doesn't say that to me at all. What does this indicate to you? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that that the issue of food insecurity is something that we've had in this country for a long time. It's not new and it's not just a result of the virus. But what the virus has done, it has put a wedge in our economy. And for all those who have been in in more precarious situations, it's made them even more precarious. And so those that, are been in, those that have been in distress are in much more distress, while others are not really feeling that at all. And I think it's important to recognize that whatever people are experiencing, there are a lot of other Americans out there who are struggling and are on the edge. And that, that evictions data is just one example of that. Um, black Americans have recovered just over a third of employment that they lost during this pandemic. This speaks to what you're talking about in terms of different experiences. Um, According to the Fed, only 34% of black households own stocks. You've been writing and speaking a lot lately about uh, widening inequality in this country. What needs to be done about it? Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that there's a problem, and we have to be willing to talk about it. You know, my institution has, has for a long time not been willing to be out in front to talk about the importance of racial inequalities I actually think that that's been a mistake. And what we're seeing is many more of my colleagues jumping up and being willing to talk about this. In terms of what to do, I think there are two dimensions on this. One is that we have to change the trajectory for the the generations to come so that they have good schooling, they have good training, they have real access to capital, and they can progress just like everyone else. But we also have a lot of people today who are trying to benefit from this economy and participate in it. So we need to make sure that we're providing resources and infrastructure to help those people as well. You know, Joe Biden has been calling for the Fed to start regularly reporting um, on racial gaps. Uh, Your name appeared in a number of reports this week as a potential member of a Biden administration, either as a Treasury secretary or head of the Federal Reserve. Are those jobs you'd be interested in? You know, Margaret, there's so much going on right now that I am not thinking about that. I've got a pandemic. I've got an economic crisis and I've got my own bank to worry about in terms of the, the policies that we're doing. So I'll let things play out as they, as they will, and we'll just see how that, how that goes. All right. That's not a no. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bostic. <laughs> we will be back in a moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. 
Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We want to go back now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. We have fixed that technical issue, we hope. You were just saying, <laughs> Dr. Gottlieb, but we were headed into a very difficult period. You, you still predict the vaccine is an event um, well into 2021. Um, when we look at what's happening right now, uh, there's such an outbreak in the Midwest. In Wisconsin, they had their highest daily case total since the pandemic began on Friday. And residents are being told to avoid crowds. But the president held a rally there just yesterday, um, he seems to not be adopting any further health restrictions, even after having recovered from the virus himself. Uh, How dangerous is this? I think it's problematic, and I think it's adding to the challenges. Look, the spread we have right now is with the mitigation that we have in place. And so we are taking some steps. If we weren't taking those steps, if people weren't wearing masks generally, and some states weren't adhering to some mitigation tactics and we weren't testing and tracing, then we'd have much worse spread. And if you look at the White House strategy, they've come out against universal masking. Um, They've come out against testing asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic people. They say testing should be reserved just to the vulnerable. They want businesses and schools reopened, as we all do, and they're against targeted mitigation like closing restaurants. There was criticism of New York when New York kept the restaurants closed. So it begs the question, what is the strategy? And I think the strategy is just to endure the spread until we get to that vaccine. And the reason that's problematic is because even if you get companies filing applications at the end of November, which is what they've said, and I'm on the board of Pfizer, one one of the companies developing one of those vaccines, it'll take FDA two to four weeks to turn that application around. Then it'll take us another two to four weeks to get the initial tranche of people, the most vulnerable who are indicated for the vaccine, vaccinated, then they need to get a second dose. And that happens in the next three to four weeks. Uh, And then it takes two weeks for the immunity really to kick in. So you're looking at a situation where the first tranche of people to get vaccinated really won't be protected from the vaccine probably till February and maybe March. And so that's a long way off. We're going to have to endure this wave of spread right now. And it's probably likely to be the biggest wave that we endure without the benefit of a vaccinated population. So we're going to have to rely on those mitigation steps. You're talking to us from Connecticut. That's a state in the yellow zone. Um, I know you plan to vote in person, but if you live in a red zone state, if you live in the Midwest right now, how safe is it to go out in the midst of an epidemic and vote? Look, I think it's I think it's possible to protect yourself, but you're going to need to take precautions. You know, the the biggest risk are the settings where we let our guard down. And when you talk to the governors about where the spread's occurring, it's occurring in congregate settings where people feel more comfortable, a local Elks Club, a large family gathering. I think when you go out to vote, the voting places are taking precautions. They're, They're sequencing people carefully. They're cleaning the voting stations in between voters. Um, their, their lines are going to be long, but they're going to take precautions inside those settings. And I think when people go out to vote, if they wear a high-quality mask, they can adequately protect themselves. The biggest risk are the settings where we are not on, our, on guard, where we let our guard down, where we're not taking those kinds of precautions. So I think you can vote safely, even in places where there's high prevalence, but you're going to need to be careful. And when you say high-quality mask, you mean not a cloth one. Is that right? Right. Quality okay. of mask matters. That's what the studies show. And so if you wear a procedure mask, that's going to protect you better. And if you're going to get N95 mask, that's even better. When you said large family gatherings are a major source of spread, are you advising people not to celebrate Thanksgiving? I think people need to weigh their individual risk. If you have people in your family who are vulnerable, um, I think it's advisable to try to continue to protect them. We have two or three very hard months ahead of us. I think this is probably going to be the hardest phase of this pandemic. The good news is that we have a lot, lot of medical treatments and better medical care, so we're going to do a better job of preserving life. The bad news is I think we're going to end up infecting a lot more people. And so, you know, we, we need to get through these next two to three months, and we've made it this far. I know people are exhausted, but we're in this about eight, nine months now and we have a short period of time to go. We're probably in the seventh inning of the acute phase of this pandemic right now. And quickly, we keep hearing about these therapeutic breakthrough drugs. How widely available will they be since we know there are likely shortages? 
Well, they're going to have to be rationed. These are the therapeutic antibody drugs. They're going to have to be rationed. And I think there's going to be challenges distributing them. Right now, the plan is to distribute them at emergency rooms. So you're going to have to compel people who are largely well, people who have the infection but haven't yet really developed symptoms, because those are the people most likely to benefit, to come into an emergency room to get infused. That's mm-hmm. going to be a challenge. A challenge in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, all right, Dr. Gottlieb, thank you for your analysis and advice. We want to go back now to the presidential campaign and check in with both sides. First, we go to the chairman of the Democratic Party, Tom Perez. Good morning to you. Good morning. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Well, our CBS Battleground Tracker shows this morning that your candidate, Joe Biden, has the edge in both uh, Arizona by three points, five-point lead in Wisconsin. A lot of that, though, ultimately is going to be dependent on turnout. Do you think the Democratic Party has done enough in the midst of this pandemic to drive up either easy balloting or ability to go to the polls? Well, I always uh, caution people never get on the polar coaster. We take nothing for granted. And the enthusiasm, Margaret, uh, has been all over the country. You saw the early vote totals in Wisconsin. Over a quarter of the people have already voted in Wisconsin. Uh, They voted absentee. You look down in Florida, 2.4 million people voted down there. And what's really interesting is uh, the Democrats are overwhelmingly uh, turning in their ballots. And 350,000 of the Democrats that have turned in their ballots haven't voted in the last two elections. So it's not just people who are voting for convenience. It's people who haven't turned out. And that shows the enthusiasm for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Uh, We have a lot more work to do, but we're expanding the battlegrounds. We're competing in places like Arizona, Texas, Mm -hmm. Ohio, Iowa, uh, Georgia, and elsewhere. And and that's because we have a a candidate who I think is just uniquely qualified to bring people together. He does have a plan to deal with our crisis, our coronavirus crisis, our economic crisis. He is a uniter. He's not a divider. And that is why uh, Joe Biden is making the progress he's making. But we well, have more work to do, and folks got to get out there and vote. Well, uh, and the, Bi- the Biden campaign has emphasized that, that you know, that, that lead is a lead, but it, it still could be neck and neck. Um, and interestingly, when you look at our Arizona poll, um, the majority of likely voters in Arizona, 56 percent, give Democrats more blame than they do to Republicans or the president for not getting an economic relief package to them right now. I mean, Americans are in an economic emergency and these negotiations remain more or less stalled on Capitol Hill. Do you think that strategy of holding out for a bigger, better deal is going to backfire for Democrats? Well, it's the Democrats who passed a bill five or six months ago, and the Republicans did nothing. They're moving heaven and earth to uh, fill a Supreme Court seat so they can undo the Affordable Care Act and undo coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. But this conditions. is blame being but they did passed next to around nothing. to you now. This is backlash. These are what well, people are saying well, they I, see blame being put here with the Democrats in their view. Well, I, 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 in the last week, I've traveled both to Arizona, to Nevada, and to Florida. And, and what I've heard from voters uh, throughout those travels, I was with uh, folks in Orlando on Thursday. Uh, people working at Disney World. Uh, one person's about to, she's going to lose her health care coverage on Thanksgiving Day. That's when she loses her health care. But uh, the Republicans don't want to uh, pay for COBRA coverage for people who've lost their coverage, who've lost their health care, they've lost their jobs. That's unconscionable. And people understand this is a health care election. In the middle of a crisis, we have a president who wants to undo coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. He wants to turn the clock back on health care. And it's the Democrats that have been fighting for it. And that's been a big sticking point in these negotiations. but But talking and doing are two different things and and not doing is what Democrats are getting blamed at for here. But I want to ask you about um, when you're talking about get out the vote efforts. Yesterday, there was a court uh, that that ruled in Republicans' favor uh, when it comes to uh, a rule in Michigan about mail-in ballots needing to be returned by 8 p.m. on Election Day. This is a state um, that could really be decisive. How much of a setback is that? 
Well, we've been organizing early in Michigan. We've been organizing early elsewhere. And in uh, Wisconsin, for instance, back in April, the, the Republicans tried to weaponize the pandemic because they wanted to win a state Supreme Court case. And we won that case. We won it decisively because we out-hustled them. We out-organized them. We turned out absentee voters in uh, droves. The same thing is happening in Michigan. Voters have options in Michigan, thanks to a ballot initiative in 2018. And they're using those options. And you look at the early vote totals, and again, Democratic energy. And so, so we you will don't see this as damaging? Well, I would rather—I I believe uh, democracy works better when everyone can cast their ballot and every ballot is counted. We're in an unprecedented pandemic here, and courts in other states have allowed votes that were postmarked by Election Day to be counted as long as they're received within a short period of time mm -hmm. after Election Day. Uh, this court did it differently. I disagree categorically with that ruling, but we are moving ahead in Michigan. We're moving ahead everywhere. And and again, uh, the pandemic in Michigan, the pandemic yeah. everywhere, uh, this is a crisis. People understand. This president has no plan. His closing argument in Michigan is uh, lock her up. Yeah. Uh, he's fanning the flames of division. He doesn't have a plan for the coronavirus. He doesn't have a plan mm -hmm. for the economy. He's divisive. Joe Biden is bringing us together. Right. People in Michigan remember that it was Joe Biden and ba Barack Obama who saved the auto industry when right. Republicans were letting it die. All right. Tom Perez, thank you very much, Chairman. We're going to turn now to uh, CBS News political analyst, Brian Priebus, who was uh, formerly Republican Party chairman. He was also the first White House chief of staff for President Trump, and he joins us from Kenosha, Wisconsin, his hometown this morning. Uh, good morning. Um, good morning, Margaret. Open up the Washington Post today. I see that you have, as they report, re-entered the Trump campaign mix. They say you're advising him on strategy, including coaching him in that recent NBC town hall. Says you are concerned about the president's chances. Is that right? You're concerned that the president is headed for a loss? Uh, no, not at all. Um, in fact, I'm not concerned about that at all. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about early vote. I'm concerned about absentee ballot voting. But I'm always worried about early vote and absentee ballot voting. Um, I haven't re-emerged. I've always been uh, helpful to the president, helpful to the RNC. Uh, but look, you know, early vote and we're, we're, we're at in a pandemic and having five times more people vote in Florida than ever before. These are unprecedented times. The polling is all over the map. Um, this is something that's going to come down to the wire, and I hope and expect the president to win. Well, what are the battleground states that you think he can win? Because as you heard from our poll, Joe Biden is at an advantage here. Well, first of all, Margaret, I mean, these polls are really, really complicated to measure. I mean, what we have in this country, we have never seen before. We have, we have regional Aside from, you know, working class white voters, suburban women, one of the other things that's going on in this country is that President Trump is winning in these rural parts of the country in unprecedented uh, numbers. I mean, we have northern Wisconsin, that's like center Wisconsin to the north. President Trump won by 18 points in 2016. Mm -hmm. Today, he's pushing 30 points ahead in rural America with enthusiasm off the charts. Yes, it's a little bit down in the suburbs, but the hard thing for these pollsters, Margaret, as you bring up, is that they can't measure this kind of disparity between the rural parts of this country and what's happening in the suburbs. So, so you think he's still going to win Wisconsin? Well, I got to tell you, I, I saw the CBS poll this morning, and I'm not spinning you. Um, I was slightly <laughs> encouraged by it because... In the real clear politics average in Wisconsin in 2016, the president was actually down by six and a half points and he won. But yeah. also, Margaret, Gary Johnson got one hundred and six thousand votes as well in 2016. So he not Trump didn't just win Wisconsin in 2016 when they said he would lose by six and a half. He won plus another conservative candidate got 106,000 ballots. So but one of the things, yeah, one of the things though with Wisconsin that our, our Anthony Salvando, our pollster pointed out though, is that base, that white non-college educated voter that came out strongly for the president back in 2016, that margin it, it, that is, is shrinking in terms of what we are seeing right now. Why do you think there is that erosion? Well, I don't know if, if if it's an erosion or not, Margaret. I mean, it, you know, clearly 
I think one of the things that you're going to see over the next couple of weeks is that the president's going to be pivoting, talking about the economy. I think this upcoming debate is going to be really important that the president is that, you know, likable, fun, have a good time. Let Joe Biden speak and let Joe Biden defend the Obama economy. Let him defend why ISIS was running wild and burning people mm-hmm. in cages. Let Joe Biden defend why he was the one guy that didn't want to go forward with the Osama bin Laden raid. Let him defend the Iran deal. Those are the things that I think, you know, pivoting to the economy that those voters are going to be listening to. But, you know, look, I think it's really complicated. Um, I don't think anyone can predict early vote and what's happening right now in this country. It is hard to predict, and it is incredible that we are in the midst of a pandemic that is shaping so much, which is I mean, how do you not address that, though? Do you really believe that there is not a political cost to the deaths that we are seeing in this country? I mean, I look at Wisconsin, where the president just had his rally, and the majority of likely Wisconsin voters tell us the response is going badly. Forty-nine percent of them say the Trump administration has hurt Wisconsin's effort. So they think the president's hurting, not helping. Well, I, I think it's going to be important for the president to remind everyone that it was he who shut down most travel from China. It was he who developed the task force. It was he uh, that helped pass the, the, the CARES Act at $2 trillion two weeks after the country was shut down. I mean, the but hospitals while, are getting way, overwhelmed. While, the, while, by the way, the now. Biden, well, look, I mean, granted, Margaret, sure, no one likes what's going on in this country. No one likes that their kids are at home, and no one likes that a lot of these states are shut down by Democrat governors. That's all true. But the question is, would this person over here, Joe Biden, have done things better or differently? Mm -hmm. And I don't think Joe Biden's made that case. But 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 the point is, is that I think that the the upcoming debate is a a great opportunity for the president to make that case to the American people. We will be he's doing well in Wisconsin. We will be watching. We'll see if he takes your advice. Thank you, Reince. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were former NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, DNC Chairman Tom Perez, and former RNC Chairman Franz Primus. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.